Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Would you all please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, speak through me, and if necessary, speak in spite of me. Amen. Amen. She was almost eight months pregnant. Just about eight months pregnant. And in her womb was the answer to her and her husband's prayers. For what seemed like years, she had been praying for this opportunity to go from being a wife to also being a mother. And with every passing month, she got larger and larger. She felt like she had a beach ball under her dress. It felt like her ankles were tree stumps. But every time she saw someone who smiled at her belly, it made it all worth it. So she was almost eight months pregnant. After she had been married, she moved across the country with her husband, and she realized that around eight months pregnant, this might be the last time she could fly home to see her family. As many of you are aware, at a certain point in your pregnancy, you're not allowed to fly anymore. So this is the last chance, and she and her husband had prayed about it and prayed about it, and they agreed that for one weekend she would fly home to be with her mother and father one final time before they became grandparents. She would go home to be with her mom and dad. And everything about the trip was hard. She got to the airport, and she was struggling to get through the terminals, but people were so kind, and they would assist her. She was the first person to sit on the airplane. Everything about it was hard but wonderful, and when she landed at the airport, her parents were there. They wrapped her up in their arms, and they were so excited about this chance to be with her daughter one last time before she became a mother. And so she was there for a quick weekend, she would sit at the dining room table where she had sat as a child and she imagined those days in the coming months and years when she would sit at a table with her own child. She had this great time with her parents. On the final morning before she had to go and fly home, they were sitting at the breakfast table eating breakfast and heard a knock at the door. So the father went to the door and opened it and there was a young man in a suit carrying a manila envelope. And he walked into the kitchen and he looked down at the pregnant woman, saw her belly, and all of a sudden he said, Oh, I'm so sorry. And he handed her the package. And so the mother and the father and the daughter who's about to become a mother, they open up the envelope and inside, divorce. She was almost eight months pregnant. She flew home for a weekend to be with her parents, and her husband sent her divorce papers. She was almost eight months pregnant, and the divorce papers arrived. And I was the one who married her to her husband. Marriage is weird. Of all the people in the world, of all the conversations, of all the possible interactions, some of us are brought together in a way that we think that spending the rest of our lives with this person is the only thing we can do. And that's really weird if you take a step back and think about it. 
I had a professor in seminary who loved to say that we never marry the right person, that we always marry the wrong person. And he said, it's not because there's anything inherently wrong with the person we marry, it's just that we don't really know who they are. We don't even really know what marriage is until we do it. And so instead of this rosy image of marriage, he said, marriage is the weird and wild journey of discovering the stranger to whom you find yourself married. And for as many marriages as I've been blessed to preside over, I can't help but wonder why in the world people get married at all, particularly today. Because I've heard all the reasons, oh, we love each other. It's the next logical step in our relationship. I can't imagine spending my life with anyone else. But if that's what marriage is, then it's pretty disappointing. Love and logic ain't enough in marriage. A successful marriage, whatever that might mean, will never be contingent on the whims or the romantic feelings or the love of those who are married. Love, it can be a strong thing, but it's not enough to sustain couples in the midst of great tribulation. Love cannot make up for horrible lapses in judgment. Love cannot make up for terrifying domestic violence. Love cannot make up for disturbing amounts of adultery. Marriage has to be about more than love. Because marriage needs endurance and patience and hope. It needs conversion. It needs renewal. It needs forgiveness. It needs sacrifice. It needs reconciliation. Marriage isn't easy. And that's why more than half of the people who get married in this country get divorced. In the United States, the top three reasons for divorce have to do with money, children, and ironically enough, the church. And all these hang-ups stem from poor or totally absent communication. A couple, they disagree about how to budget their money. Or one of them gambles it all away without telling the spouse. Or a couple disagrees about how to discipline a child or whether or not to have children at all. A couple disagrees about the role the church should play in their relationship or their religious convictions no longer harmonize with each other. Those are the top three. And there is a new number four that's slowly making its way up the charts. Do you know what it is? Social media. Think about that. I was taught in seminary that when you do premarital counseling with couples, you should always talk to them about their bank accounts. Do you have a joint bank account? You should have a joint bank account. Not so you can check up on your spouse, but so that you know your spouse can check up on you. It prevents you from spending money in ways that you shouldn't. But now they're teaching people in seminary not just to talk about bank accounts, but to tell young couples, you need to share your passwords. You need to give your spouse the password to your email and to your Facebook and to your Twitter and to your Snapchat. And I know some of you don't know what any of those things are, and that's okay. But it means that people are using mechanisms like those to cheat on their spouses, to betray their spouses, to find fulfillment they're not finding in their spouses, and they're hiding it because they can protect it with a password. And so we live in a world now where during premarital counseling, we talk with couples about sharing their passwords together. In our country, there is one divorce every 36 seconds. That means in the time I've been preaching, we've already had 10. There is one divorce every 36 seconds. That's nearly 2,400 per day. It's 16,800 per week and almost 900,000 every year. There is a divorce 
every 36 seconds. It is one of the most prevalent occurrences that we have in our culture, in our society, that we, many of us, have become completely numb to it, and we certainly never talk about it in the church. We don't take it very seriously. And many, so many are quick to end their relationships when they first experience hiccups. But as Christians, we are called to hear what Jesus had to say about divorce, which can be a really bitter pill to swallow. So if you can, for just a moment, imagine you were me. And for some of you, that sounds terrifying. For some of you, you would love to get to dress like this on Sundays. <laughs> imagine you were me, standing right here, tasked with proclaiming this word, looking out at you. Because if we are at all an average church, half of the married people who are here have already been divorced. Or will be by the end of their lives. So when you think about what Jesus had to say, what Michael read for us, it becomes all the more difficult to think about and to talk about divorce. Some Pharisees tried to test him because Moses allowed men to write certificates of dismissal to divorce their wives. And during the time of Moses and Jesus, if you received that certificate, if you were a married woman and you were divorced, you would lose everything. A woman divorced during the time of Jesus could easily find herself on the street begging for food or prostituting her body for money. So Jesus was deeply concerned with marginalized people in this community, and in particular, he was concerned about women who were handed a signature that destroyed everything about their lives. But of course, here we are in 2018. Things have changed, have they not? It seems like we now listen to what women have to say. <laughs> or maybe things really haven't changed at all. Jesus' response to the Pharisees that day, it's still one that casts a great shadow over families and churches and communities. He said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses gave you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them for each other. For this reason, someone will leave from their family and be joined to another, and they become one flesh. So longer they are no not two, they are one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus talked about this stuff a lot. Divorce is one of the things he talked about the most. And yet in the church, we avoid it at all costs. Probably because, in all probability, half the people in this room are divorced. So let's at least consider one thing Jesus said. What God has joined together, let no one separate. God is the one who does the joining. We are the ones who do the separating. Or perhaps a better way to put it is this. Divorce is never what God intends or hopes for. But there are certainly times when there might not be another option. Think about times of horrific physical abuse or traumatic adultery or any number of things. They can be nearly impossible to move through. But you know what? Plenty of people get married for some of the, or get divorced for some of the most mundane reasons. Our interests have grown apart. We no longer communicate effectively. I'm just not in love anymore. As long as we are human beings, divorce will always be a reality which is to say, as long as we are sinners, we will sin against each other. 
But we also worship a God of impossible possibilities who believes in us even when we do not. We follow a first century Jew who believed in the sanctity of covenants even when we do not live according to them. We're empowered by a spirit of truth and renewal and reconciliation and forgiveness. That doesn't mean it's easy, it just means it's complicated. His marriage is a strange and a serious thing. It is perhaps one of the most strangely serious things that any of us can ever do. And we know how strangely serious it is because it is the preferred metaphor for how God relates to us, his people. Marriage is not normative for Christians. It is certainly not the expectation. You don't have to be married to be a Christian. If any of us discover someone in whom we believe we can covenant to be together forever, good for us. If we are never beckoned here to the altar to make that covenant with anyone else, good for us too. You don't have to be married to be a Christian. But marriage, whether we experience it personally or not, is something we are all called to know. Because God has covenanted to be with us. God stands before us again and again, knowing full and well that we have failed to respond to the promise. We regularly pursue our own desires. We sin against our neighbors and our friends and strangers. We forget what God was willing to do and is willing to do for us. So Jesus was able to speak with such ferocious certainty and conviction about the virtues of marriage because Jesus is the one who is married to us. He was holding on to the promise that Jesus found himself nailed to the hard wood of the cross while abandoned by the bride, which is us, the community we call the church. Marriage is a strange and serious thing. And so is divorce, which is why we need to talk about it. In every marriage, there is a strange discovery of realizing that we don't really know the person we married. We move through tragedies and hardships. We experience mountaintops of joy or deep valleys of sorrow. And if we are still married in the end, it is because we have found the true nature of God in covenant and in hope and in sacrifice. Marriage, we forget sometimes, is a radical and countercultural endeavor. Jesus subverted all of the expectations of marriage when the Pharisees came that day because he believed that marriages should exist in planes of equity. Men could divorce women for whatever reason they wanted during the time of Jesus. All they had to do was write their name on a piece of paper, and it would effectively end their lives. And Jesus looks on that scene and says, No more. You cannot abandon those with whom you've made a covenant. No longer would the patriarchal norms in which women had no power be present in something like a marriage. But of course... Some things haven't really changed. Marriage, it has to be something more than can be ended with a piece of paper. But as long as that option remains, as it should in some circumstances, the church must be the place where redemption can be found. She was almost eight months pregnant. And when she opened up her certificate of dismissal, it was like the ground had been removed from her feet. All of her hopes, all of her dreams, all of her expectations flew away like the wind. She had moved back in with her parents, abandoned the new life she had created on the other side of our country. And when that day arrived, when she went to labor, it wasn't her husband that was with her in the hospital, it was her parents. 
And I wish I could paint this story with some redemptive arc where all things are roses and there are rainbows in the sky, but that's not how this story goes. She's a single mother having to figure out life on her own. Having to only find hope in this baby girl that she holds in her arms. And I know that there are days when she sees that baby smile and it's almost as if it can make everything go away. But then sometimes she looks down at the baby and she sees her husband. That's what divorce does. Sometimes divorce is necessary. Sometimes it's the only way to save somebody. But when divorce happens, it always leaves a wake. Someone always suffers. And more often than not, it's children. So the church has to be the place. It has to be the place where married couples really learn what it means to be faithful to something they never could have imagined. The church. The church has to be a place where divorced people can come and discover a community that will remain steadfast even if their partner didn't. But at the same time, the church has to be the place where that sinful partner can one day find new life and redemption on the other side of repentance for what they did. The church, the church has to be the place for single people who never feel called to be married to embody similar covenants with their brothers and their sisters in Christ. The church is a strange place. It's where the virtues of marriage and the destructive power of divorce come together. Because it's never really about us, but it's about what God can do through us. So by a show of hands, how many of you have now heard a sermon about divorce? I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, now and forever. Amen.